Sorry. This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. If you had not seen the reports, you probably would not believe it. That's right. You probably would not believe it. The Grammys have long been understood to be, well, the ever-progressive experience of wokeness attempting to shock the nation as best that they could in any way possible. But this last Sunday, I hear and have seen on the Internet the most astounding performance that you could possibly imagine would be shown on public television to all audiences. The woke Grammys under fire for unholy Satan worshiping. Unholy Satan worshiping performance. I don't know these individuals, but perhaps you know or have heard of them. Sam Smith and Kim Petras were roundly condemned after they brought a satanic touch to the Grammy Awards Sunday night. It wasn't a satanic touch. It was outright sodomization of the world in the name of Satan. The duo performed their hit music piece called Unholy on a night when they won the Grammy for Best Pop Duo or Group. Unholy. That should say it all, except that the word holy has fallen on very hard terms because it's a four-letter word, just like the word obey. Holy? Who wants to be holy? I want to do what I want to do. I want to say what I want to say. I want to be what I want to be. I want to have sex the way I want to have sex. I just want to do what I want to do. Well, that's what Satan said. He said, I don't agree with the fact that I have to agree with what God, the creator, has said. Uh, I will be like the most high God. I will ascend to the heights of the north. I'll do my own thing. And so, hence, we have the American mantra Made popular by Frank Sinatra, I'll Do It My Way. It's a beautiful song, but it expresses a very ungodly idea. Well, this duo, the satanic duo, performed their hit Unholy on Sunday night. Sam Smith was clad in red leather and then added a satanic horned top hat. Petrus was shown dancing in a cage surrounded by dancers also wearing satanic headgear. But that doesn't say at all, friends. All of this was in a massive stage situation where red lights and the most, uh, as best they could characterize what hell might be like. That's what they presented. And they did it with boldness. They did it with gladness. They did it with joy. They felt that they were really now expressing reality. Well, maybe they were. Maybe they were expressing a level of reality that the rest of us have not quite grasped yet. Senator Ted Cruz from Texas said this is evil. He responded to a text from Liz Wheeler who said, Demons are teaching your kids to worship Satan. Can pop music get any lower than it is today? 
I don't know how it could, but I suppose that it can because the devilish, demonic forces that are now ruling pop music are just unbelievable. Even Taylor Swift has gotten into the action. It's just unfortunate. She's the most popular singer out there, pop music singer. But she's gotten into the action, too. Not there on that particular event. But she's gotten into the action, and uh, in her latest song, she's actually celebrating uh, the homosexuality and uh, all of the things that the Bible prohibits. And she claims to be a Christian. That's the problem. She claims to be a Christian. Evil will always be evil. Satanism will always be Satanism. The demonic will always be demonic. But when it comes in the name of Christ, friends, that's where we really have a problem. So it's one thing to be able to see and just gasp with horror at what took place at the Grammys, and you would. Words are not adequate to express what really took place there. I couldn't believe my eyes. When it talks about gyrations, that doesn't even begin to describe what took place. Petrus, one of the two who was in the music group, said, as a trans person, I'm already not kind of wanted in religion, so I'm kind of a hell keeper. Well, that's exactly what she was, and played it out inside a cage ruled by Satan himself and was proud of it, celebrating it. And others shared their opinions as well, with one Twitter user saying, this song is sinfully blasphemous, while another called the performance a tribute to Satan. Indeed, it was. But that's not all. Perhaps even more disturbing, or equally disturbing, is who sponsored it. Anchor your seatbelt, my friends. The German-born singer Kim Petrus performed her hit Unholy in the most literal way possible, as we've described. A gyrating Petrus danced in a cage surrounded by similarly horned dancers, half-naked, So if you were one of those who was tuning in to see the Grammys, which I do not do, it could hit a no low, new low in taste, but apparently you would, wouldn't be disappointed. Here's, here's the problem, though. As with any broadcast on network television, it has to sell products called advertising. So that introduces another problem. Who wants to be associated with Satan? Who wants to buy ad spots right after that amazing blasphemous scene? Well, are you prepared for this report? The show was sponsored by the pharmaceutical giant and COVID vaccine producer Pfizer. You got that right. So Pfizer has been deceiving now right along. We've revealed that in the last two weeks here on this program. But Satan himself is the deceiver. He's called the deceiver by Jesus himself. And deception is part of his modus operandi. In fact, it's his key method of spiritual warfare. Deception. 
Well, that ceremony, to best celebrate the agenda of the left and the Grammys, which easily takes the cake as the entertainment industry's primo celebration or primo celebration of perversion, indoctrination, and moral turpitude, or we might say debauchery. So while Pfizer's alignment with Democrats and the American left probably has more to do with the profit motive than with any other kind of satanic value judgment, the company has aligned itself and signed on to the entire package. Would you? For money? What about for power? For perks? For position? For political power? What would you be willing to do? What are states willing to do to try to draw the sodomizers even to their states? We'll be right back. Once upon a time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chris Meyer, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org. From Maine to Minnesota, it seems like the states are in a hardcore press in order to welcome perversion into their states to celebrate it and to protect it. Minnesota lawmakers are considering a bill that would establish the state as a trans refuge for children who are seeking transgender medical procedures but who may be blocked by laws in other states. The legislation was introduced by Representative Lee Fink of the Democrat Farmer Labor Party. It would make Minnesota into a trans refuge state by protecting protecting trans people, their families, and medical practitioners from legal, legal repercussions of traveling to Minnesota to receive gender-affirming care. In other words, surgeries to completely transform their natural order. That's Minnesota. And then there's Maine, from Maine to Minnesota, from Minnesota to Maine. A Maine mom is demanding that a school district open investigation into social worker who allegedly provided her daughter with chest binders and advised her to keep it a secret from her parents. The 13-year-old girl was called a male name at school despite never receiving parental consent to do so. The parents said, I feel like my parental rights were violated. And I don't understand how somebody who works in social services thinks that driving this kind of wedge between a student and their parents is at all helpful for their mental health. So the mom is demanding an investigation into the main school district that provided the chess binders. Apparently, that is something that they approve of there in that school district. In fact, it's approved of in California. It's approved of in many states of the Union. Why? What is this going on? Well, these states are choosing. They are choosing whether to align themselves with the spirit of God or the spirit of his archenemy, Satan. Satan is the deceiver from the beginning. It is he that stirs up pornography. It is he that stirs up 
any of these practices of sexual perversion and distortion that are contrary to nature and nature's God, it is he that does that. He is seeking to pervert the creative order of the creator. That's his goal. I will be like the most God, like the most high God. I will even recreate. I will change creation itself. And that's what the agenda is. I will change creation itself. Now, it's one thing for this to be taking place in the secular world. But how about in the so-called Christian world? How about in the church itself? Let's take a look at that, if we dare. One Christian pastor, he calls himself a Christian pastor, says that transphobia is a sin. Not transgenderism, not the practice of transgenderism, but transphobia. In other words, somehow coming against the practice of transgenderism. He's calling that a sin. So he's calling black, white, white, black, sin to be that which glorifies God and that which glorifies God to be a sin. The pastor and his wife said people who identify as transgenders are divine. That's right. So he called for Christians to join a campaign condemning transphobia. He's the pastor of a Lutheran church who described, and his wife described herself as a queer clergy spouse. A queer clergy spouse. So Chris Brusehoff can be seen inside his church holding a sign stating, quote, transphobia is a sin, unquote. While his wife captured the post, quote, trans people are divine, unquote. Now, he says not only is transphobia a sin, but transgender people are whole and holy. Trans people are divine. He is a pastor in the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, considered one of the most inclusive and welcoming Lutheran denominations toward the LGBTQ community. What do we make of this? This is in the name of Christ, friends. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24? Talking about deception. Remember, he calls Satan the deceiver. He said, many will come in my name and deceive many. Now, this is only one of the deceptions that's coming in the name of Christ. But we need to see it for what it is. That's what it is. It's not just a culture war issue. It's a deception coming, it's a spiritual deception coming in the name of Christ. It's calling that which is salacious, holy, and that which is holy, salacious. It is laying the foundation for the complete sodomization of the church of Jesus Christ. Are you beginning to get the seriousness of this? An Anglican and Presbyterian religious leader echoed Pope Francis's recent comments about the injustice of the criminalization of homosexuality during a conference with the Pope last week. 
The Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, remember, he's the head honcho of the Church of England. And the moderator, Presbyterian moderator of the Church of Scotland, was asked about Pope Francis's previous comments that homosexuality should not be criminalized and confirmed that they had similar feelings on the subject. Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, said to condemn someone like this is a sin. Now, here's the problem. To claim that the practice of homosexuality is sinful is not to condemn the person who has homosexual tendencies. Many people have different kinds of tendencies, friends. And this is where people don't quite understand. If you have a tendency toward anger, does that mean that we should put our blessing and authentication on all expressions of anger, including uh, battery and murder? And then somehow allege that somehow they should be entitled to that expression because, well, that's just who they are. No, that isn't just who they are. That's the sinful aspect of who they are. That isn't their person. It is what they're doing because they're giving in to sinful tendencies. Because we're all sinners by birth. As the psalmist said, in sin did my mother conceive me. It's a sin inherited. It's a a tendency to sin inherited from the sin of Adam and Eve. So the Bible says we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. So to say that someone who uh, has a tendency toward homosexuality or a leaning that way does not is not a condemning uh, comment. It's just an observation just like somebody who has a tendency to be angry. So the problem is not with the behavior or the tendency. It's what I do with that tendency. If I give into it, then I'm giving sway to sin, and I am becoming under the bondage of sin. I'm coming under the bondage of that particular uh, drawing in my sinful nature. That's what the sin is. So just because someone uh, has a desire to uh, have sex, male or female, doesn't make them a pervert. It's when they give in to their desires in an illicit and ungodly and unbiblical way, without self-control, that's when uh, they bring themselves under the condemnation of the word of God. Not under the condemnation of Christians, under the condemnation of the word of God. So when Christians just agree with what God has said in his word, that's all they're doing. God is the one who's saying it. It's like the one pastor that was preaching concerning uh, adultery and fornication. And a woman came up to him afterward and said, I don't like what you said. The pastor said, I, I didn't say that. So he had her open her Bible to the place where he quoted, 
And he said, would you please read this out loud? And so she read it, and all of a sudden it shut her mouth. Why is that? Because the pastor wasn't the one who was saying it. He was just repeating what God had said. So now she has, her issue is not with the pastor, it's with God. So if you have problems with some of the things perhaps that are said here on this program, the issue that you must take is either with maybe yours truly has a wrong attitude at a a particular point, and that's possible because I'm a human being just like you are. I don't want to have a, a wrong attitude. I want to have a loving attitude. I want to have an attitude of uh, conciliation. I want to have an attitude of kindness and blessing. But you see, to speak the truth in this generation is not seen as kindness. And yet the Bible says that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And you're not going to repent of something that you don't admit is sinful. You see the point. That's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, because without repentance, there's no remission of sin. Without the shedding of blood and then our agreement with God's assessment that we need a Savior and that we need his blood to cover and cleanse us from all sin, without that, there is no hope for salvation. We have to confess our sin. And then we have to turn from it. That's repentance. And then we have activated the environment, the spiritual environment, for God to fulfill his promises. It's not by works that we do. We have to cooperate in our heart, in our attitude, with the free gift that God offers us for redemption and salvation. And forgiveness. So these pastors and at the highest echelons of the so-called Christian community, whether it be uh, the Pope, uh, whether it be the Archbishop of the Roman Catholic Church, whether it be the head of the Church of Scotland, or whatever it happens to be, it doesn't matter. The Presbyterian Church USA, doesn't matter. What they're doing is elevating their viewpoint over what God has said. They're making themselves, just like Satan said, co-equal with God. That was Adam's sin. He chose to agree, as did Eve, agree with what what Satan said rather than what God said. So here's the question that I have for you. You see, on this program, it's not just about the information that we bring. It's how that gets applied so that you and I have to make a decision. And we must every day. You have to make a decision with regard to what is presented here on this program because it's presented for a precise purpose to bring us into a better position, a more righteous and holy position with regard to the God that we claim to serve and love. So question, is there anything in your life that you're elevating your viewpoint over what God has said? Anything. Are you attempting to justify yourself 
And your attitudes or your actions or your tendencies or whatever, are you attempting to justify anything in your life? Or how about the life of your spouse? Or how about the life of your children or your grandchildren? You see, we're all dealing with this, aren't we? We're all dealing with this. The tendency in our culture now, it's always been this way since Adam and Eve, but it's even intensifying now because Satan's time is drawing short. And so the wooing and the seducing is increasing dramatically. And we see it happening to our children and our grandchildren. And they're being sucked in to the seduction of our time, the spiritual seduction of our time, the salaciousness, the approving of that which God says he hates or is an abomination and the rejection of those who embrace what God says that those things are an abomination. It's dividing the whole world, including our families. We'll be right back. There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, under the marriage section, God has marriage on his mind. Chuck has some great resources to strengthen your marriage. First off, a fact sheet on the state of the marital union, a fact sheet on the state of ministry, marriage, and morals. SaveUS.org. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage. What does the Bible really teach about this? Find all of this at SaveUS.org. Also, a letter to pastors, the Hosea Project, SaveUS.org, and many more resources to strengthen your marriage. It's all on Chuck's website, saveus.org. Again, you can listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast live and archived. Save America Ministries website at saveus.org. Welcome back to Viewpoint. I'm Chuck Chris Meyer. I want to make available to you my book, Seduction of the Saints, How to Stay Pure in a World of Deception. One of the chapters is called Cultural Seduction. Culture is a powerful and pervasive life influence. And with the exception of the laws of nature, such as the law of gravity, the culture in which we live undoubtedly exerts the greatest influence in our lives during our earthly sojourn. The power and force of culture is so great that it can literally lord it over our lives. And when culture becomes lord, Christ is no longer our master, but at best, our mascot. That's just the introduction to the chapter. The culture is a gateway to massive deception. The church has become in bed with the culture. In fact, the church, both individual and corporate, has, like ancient Israel, committed adultery with the surrounding culture. You may remember Jeremiah's lament to God's chosen people 2,500 years ago. It's echoing down to today with just as much persuasiveness today. Like an arrow deftly released from God's unerring bow of truth, it strikes the bull's eye of our hearts, our lives, our ministries. It pierces to the depths of our souls. It finds its mark in the darkened corners of our lives where professing Christians and their pastors are cuddling with the culture. Finding seductive solace for souls, parts for lack of intimacy. Wow. Did I write this? Pastors cuddling with the culture? 
finding seductive solace for souls parched for intimacy? Hmm. The Holy Spirit must have been involved with putting those words together. Here's what Jeremiah said. My heart within me is broken because of the prophets, for the land is full of adulterers. Both prophet and priest are profane. Yes, in my house I have found their wickedness, says the Lord. I've seen also in the prophets of Jerusalem a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. None returns from his wickedness. They're all to me as Sodom and the inhabitants thereof as Gomorrah. Wow. The God who betrothed himself to Israel was a jilted lover. He was a jealous God. Jeremiah went on to say, they will deceive everyone his neighbor, will not speak the truth. They have taught their tongues to speak lies. Through deceit, they refuse to know me, says the Lord. Their tongue is an arrow shot out and speaks deceit. Says the Lord, shall not my soul be avenged on such a nation as this? Wow. So should not my soul be avenged on such a nation as this? Should that not be equally appropriate, not only to Israel, but to America today? Jeremiah went on to say, my people have forgotten me days without number. Yet you say, because I'm innocent, surely his anger shall turn from me. Behold, I will plead with you because you say I have not sinned. You polluted the land with your whoredoms, with your wickedness. Therefore, the showers have been withheld. There has been no latter rain, and you have a whore's forehead. You refuse to be ashamed. Wow. This is tough talk for troubled times, friends. This is the God of the Bible who is speaking. This is the Jesus that many people have never known. Thus says the Lord, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. Know, therefore, and see that it is an evil thing and bitter, that you have forsaken the Lord your God, and that my fear is not in you. You say, I will not transgress, yet upon every high hill and under every green tree you wander playing the harlot. You go, the Lord has rejected your confidences, and you shall not prosper in them. Adultery in the heart, adultery in the home. It's just unbelievable, friends. We could go on in that regard. But we're not going to. I want you to get a copy of my book, Seduction of the Saints, Staying Pure in a World of Deception, because in this book, you will find Virtually everything that you need, taken from the scripture, everything that you need to understand how to identify what deception looks like. And it's not just about sexual things. That is just one chapter. There's a reason people are saying that this is one of the most important books they have ever read other than the Bible. And the reason they say is because it is so practical. In other words, so unbelievably relevant. That's what they're really saying. Now, I want to give you an idea before we 
make the book available. Well, as before, before we uh, get going again, Seduction of the Saints is the name of the book. Staying Pure in a World of Deception. It's a $20 or $18 book. Yours for $15. It's on our website, saveus.org. Saveus.org. Call us. Give us a, give us a call. 1-800-SAVE-USA. Don't pass out this opportunity, friends. These things are way too important. Your children and your grandchildren, pastors, the people in your congregations are caught in the vice grip of seduction. The seduction, not of the world, but of the saints. That's the problem. The world will always be the world. But when the church is trying to emulate the world in order to win the world, you know We've got massive blasphemy on our hands. And just as Jesus said, many will come in my name and deceive many. $15 on our website, saveus.org. Seduction of the Saints. Call us, 1-800-SAVE-USA. Write to us at Save America Ministries. P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. Writing a check at $5 for postage and handling. And then again, another one. For decades, the gender of God has prompted debate within the church, with many calling for male pronouns, he and him, as well as reference to our father to be a scrapped. Now, in what would mark a departure from centuries of tradition, bishops in the Church of England are to launch a project on gendered language. Referencing God in church services later this year. Liberal Christians are welcoming this, claiming that it's a theological misreading of God as exclusively male, as a driver of much continuing discrimination and sexism against women. Actually, quite the contrary. It's just the opposite. This is not about sex, friends. It's about authority. When God is referenced as Father, it's about authority. Jesus referred to God as Father. He said, as the Son, I only do what I see the Father do, hear the Father say, and so on. Why? Because the Father, God has given to have primary oversight and authority in every home. It's true. God has given the male in the home the primary responsibility of being the head of the home and the head of the wife. Christ is our head of male and female. If we don't submit to Christ... We're not under his authority. That is, if we disagree with what Jesus says, we're not under his authority. We're under our own authority. We have superimposed ourselves on top of Jesus as the authority. But Jesus isn't the only authority. The Father is the ultimate authority. You see? So when Jesus said, I and the Father are one, what he's actually saying is, look, on earth, 
I'm submitting myself as God the Father has ordained. I'm submitting myself in the proper authority, authority hierarchy to the Father. When I ascend back to the Father, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Therefore, if you don't obey me, you don't obey the Father. And if you don't obey the Father, you don't obey me. Therefore, friends, you can't obviate yourself or excuse yourself from uh, reading and following the Old Testament unless you're in rebellion against the Father. And by being in rebellion against the Father, you are also in rebellion against Jesus. It's very simple. That's the reason the gender references in the Bible for God are important. It's not because God himself is male or female in that sense. God has a reason for manifesting himself in his word the way he does. And who are you, pastor? Who are you, potential theologian? Who are you, you pontificating politician in the name of Christ? Who are you to elevate your reasoning and thoughts over what God has said? You see the problem? And now, because of this, we are being led into the sodomization of the church. In the name of Christ. This is one of the reasons why Pope Benedict released had released a book that had been written before he died. And he was claiming in that book that pornography and homosexual clubs and pedophilia had taken root within the Roman Catholic Church. And he was absolutely right. Being blessed, normalized, celebrated, while the so-called priests are supposed to be representing God to the people in the so-called Holy Eucharist. What a blasphemy. Oh, and we're not through yet. I hope you'll stay tuned, friends. What I'm about to share with you is critically important. Have you ever considered what the early church was like? Many people are developing a heart longing for a greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by his spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, behold how they love one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church. Again, I welcome you back to Viewpoint. Today we're talking about something really important. And I do say, really important. 
We're talking about how the church is being seduced from pulpit to pew and from pew back to pulpit, responding, bowing down to the pressure of the culture in order to try to win the culture to Christ. And the culture has actually won the church to Satan and Satan's lordship. He's causing the church and its leaders in virtually every area. I'm not talking about every single individual now, but I'm talking in a, in a broad and accurate way. The body of Christ, the church, Protestant, Catholic, liberal, evangelical, all being seduced massively. Seduced because we want something that God did not plan for us to have. We wanted power, perks, and position. We wanted recognition. We wanted to build my big church. That's what the whole church growth movement was about. And in order to do that, we dissed what God said. Jesus said, I ordain you to make disciples. I'll build my church. We decided we'd rather build churches and not make disciples. Because to make a disciple, you can't uh, measure that particularly. It's too difficult to measure. You can't notch your belt. Say, well, I made a disciple here. No. So what we did, we superimposed another human viewpoint, that is making a confession with the word making a disciple. To make a disciple is to teach people to obey everything I've commanded, Jesus said, in his great commission. No, we decided to make a disciple means to get somebody to uh, spout some magic words at a moment so that we can notch our belt and say we had this many salvations and get more uh, attention from the denominational heads and sell more books. I'm just telling you the way it really is. That's the evangelical culture and economy. Then we move from the church growth movement to the seeker-sensitive movement, where instead of teaching and preaching and preparing God's people that we're supposed to be gathering once a week for the instruction in righteousness, for the protection, for the correction in righteousness, instead of that, we gave watered-down soup to try to seduce unbelievers into our congregations, where the congregations were never for that purpose. Never. They were for the saints. The saints were then to go out as the church scattered to win the lost. Then we decided we're going to shift that and we're going to try to win the lost by seducing them into our congregations. And in order to do that, we had to be like the Pied Piper and spread the little breadcrumbs and candies, spiritual candies along the way to try to get them to come into the doors of our congregation where we gave them milk toast instead of meat. 
gradually over the past 50 years. I've watched this happen from coast to coast. It all began in Pasadena, California, where I was practicing law, where I was speaking throughout all of Southern California as a a businessman, as a lawyer, uh, trying to advance the cause of the kingdom of God from a businessman and lawyer's viewpoint. I watched it all happen right there. And it echoed across the country. And what you have been experienced, what we've been experienced the inauguration of the lordship of feelings instead of faith and facts, all of this has happened because we have been seduced. Now this is taking hold in terms of seducing us to embrace that which God calls an abomination and that which God calls what he hates. First, it began with embracing divorce. That was in the 1970s, in the name of God is love. Then it became, then it spread from there to embrace uh, remarriage when your spouse was still living, which Jesus called adultery. And we justified that by superimposing our own viewpoint over what Jesus had said and dissed what he said. It's not really adultery because, well, and then we made up our own ideas about what would not be adultery. All rationalization all seduction. We seduced ourselves. And then, once that was established, it was an easy mark for the practice of homosexuality to be to come in. And then, in the more liberal churches, homosexual marriage. Now, transgenderism and pedophilia. You see, there's no end in sight. Satan doesn't give up. But we are. We've been seduced. I want to share with you something that uh, just happened yesterday. I received a communication from uh, my friend who has been our publicist now for about 20 years. We've been working with him uh, through Save America Ministries and so on for almost 30 years now. And... I said this to him in an email. It's interesting now, after two years of promotion, that the book Antichrist that we wrote substantially outshines the book Messiah in terms of both interest and sales among professing saints. Perhaps this is not only indicative of the current mindset of Christians, but is also prophetic of the coming period before Christ's return. The counterfeit will command the prevalent focus and even our faith. And here's what he responded with. Please listen carefully, friends. These are not my words. These are the words of a serious Christian publicist. It's very hard to find people like this because most of them have been seduced by the ways of the world. Here's what he says. Chuck, every Christian media outlet in the country should book this book, Messiah. He said, we are descending into judgment. Descending into judgment. He went on to say this. A so-called Christian publisher sent me a copy of a book last week pushing critical theory and diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I asked the publisher if he knew this was Marxist theory. Never in 30 years of doing this have I had so many 
questionable books. And InterVarsity Press publishing titles by gay Christians? I never thought I would ever live to see this kind of degradation and compromise. Some of this started with Christian publishers selling off to general market companies and then having their content controlled by non-believers. But that's not InterVarsity's excuse. Friends, this is just a simple little paragraph explaining from somebody else's viewpoint who has been in the midst of this, watching the drift, experiencing it, having to work with it for 30 years and watching this trend. I remember back in, uh, what was it? 1992, 1992, 93. I had written a book called Preserve Us a Nation. Preserve Us a Nation. I got a call from the a man who was well-known in the Christian publishing realm of evangelical Christians. And he contacted me and he said, Chuck, I have been the head of one of the largest Christian publishing companies in the world. I'm not going to give you the name of the company. He said, not long ago, I had to make a decision to leave the company that I formed and that I've been heading. Because it's gotten to the place where I can no longer publish what needs to be published. The culture is demanding things, and within the organization, I am being forced to agree and not publish the things that are true and honest and just within biblical parameters. So he said, I formed my own publishing company, another one. And he said, I'm going to start out with six books, and I would like your book, to be one of those six. His name was John Van Deest. I don't know if he's still living today, but I'll tell you one thing, that spoke to my heart. Does it speak to your heart at all? That was in 1992, my friend. As I recall, the book came out in 1993, Preserve Us a Nation. And I needed to understand that what God was calling me to do, that I wasn't just out there on a limb, just totally disconnected with reality within what was happening among God's people. And here was a publisher, a major publisher, who was telling me, from his own heart, how broken he was about what was happening in Christian publishing at that time. And how many years ago was that? Mm-mm-mm. 30 years ago. 
So now when my friend here, this Christian uh, uh, publicist, is telling me, in 30 years of doing this, I have never had so many questionable books. What he's saying is that the church, professing Christians and their leaders, are producing books and materials that are actually representing the culture and its demands and the seduction of the saints using Christ as the salesman. In other words, in the name of Christ. So Christ is no longer the master. He is just the mascot being used to promote. It's just very hard for me to withhold the tears here, friends. Very hard. If my heart is broken the way it is, do you not think the Father's heart would be broken? Do you not think Jesus would say over America and the church in America today and the whole Western world, oh, Western world, oh, America, oh, American church, oh, you professing Christians in the Western world, how I would have gathered you like a chicken, like a hen would gather its chicklets under its wings, but you would not. And Jesus would weep. He would weep. And I believe he's weeping today. And he knows that we're descending into judgment, just like this publicist is saying. We are descending into judgment, and it is going quick. So if you think that somehow... There's a a level of intensity that's growing in these programs. And passion, you're absolutely right, friends. Somebody has to tell the truth. Somebody has to be willing to get out on the limb to get the message out to the maximum number of people before Jesus comes. And when he comes... He's not coming as an act of mercy. He's coming to judge the earth in righteousness. You know that, of course. Now, get a copy of the book, Seduction of the Saints, $15 on our website, saveus.org. Call us 1-800-SAVE-USA. And really, seriously consider becoming a partner to help us get this message out more broadly. You can do it. Let's do it together. You've been listening to Viewpoint with Chuck Grissmeyer. Viewpoint is supported by the faithful gifts of our listeners. Let me urge you to become a partner with Chuck as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation. Join us again next time on Viewpoint as we confront the issues of America's heart and home.